The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 6, uh, verses 1 through 7. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Kathleen. Good morning. I'm Bill McCutcheon, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I was thinking about our faith, thinking about Christ and Christianity and and the implications of, of that, considering you as you listen, both here and those who are listening online, and some of you have been walking as we were with Christ for a very long time. Others of you may be brand new to the Christian faith, and still some of you may be here this morning and listening in, just investigating, asking, what's this all about? What are the implications of Christ in my life? And as I was thinking about But what does it look like for a life to be transformed by the power of the gospel? What does it look like for us to encounter Jesus, and not just to encounter the truth claims of Christianity, but to embrace those truth claims and to say, I believe those to be true. I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. I submit myself now willingly uh, as a citizen in his kingdom. Does it have any effect in the near term on the life that we live? And there seems to be a growing number of churches and people within churches that would say, no, not really. That as long as I have Jesus and I assent to those views and say that I believe in them, I essentially can live the life that I was previously living and show up at church every now and then, or not show up at church, which is the new trend of, I don't need to be in the gathered body, I don't need to be in church at all, I can watch it if I want to watch it, or not watch it if I don't want to watch it, as long as I say I love Jesus. And as far as lifestyle, I've got my fire insurance. I know that I'm going to heaven because the scripture says if you confess with your 
uh, lips and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you're going to be saved. Well, I did that. And, and so I'm fine. Well, the challenge in our modern culture and modern interpretation of what it means to follow Jesus, the implications of that, are that what's currently being, maybe not even taught, but what is being widely accepted has no foundation within the Scripture itself. When someone comes and encounters Jesus Christ, now in the New Testament church, encounters Christ not in his personhood as they would have in, in those three years when he was there, but now through the preaching and teaching of his word, through coming by faith, believing and seeing the truth of who Christ is. What difference does it make in my day-to-day? -day? Well, this week we're looking and starting just two weeks looking at the person of Stephen. Stephen is a, a, a man, we don't know that he was a young man or an old man, he was just a man, who we're introduced to here in Acts chapter 6. And Stephen recognized that coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, that the gospel, the good news of who Christ was, was a gospel that was worth living for. His life that we're going to look at uh, today showed in it both in his, all in his character, in the manner of his lifestyle, and in the speech, that which came out of his mouth, all of those three things represented a man who had encountered Christ in such a profound way that he realized, I'm changed from the inside out. The very character and nature of who I am is different. Springing from that... Now that my operating system is changed, now springing from that, my lifestyle is different, how I live within the community is different, and how I speak is radically transformed. Next week, we're going to look at this same Stephen. And he said, not on his own choice, by the way, he said, this, this gospel is worth living for, and next week, we're going to hear him say, this gospel is worth dying for. The same gospel, the same good news of who Jesus was, came and he said, I'm all in. And I recognize that by being all in, I can't be the same man that I previously was. It affects who I am. And it affects me so much that now I'm willing to even give the ultimate sacrifice for my king who gave the ultimate sacrifice for me of his life for mine. And so as you're here today, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about these things in, in your life of, of asking, what are the implications? And am I willing to accept those? And here's the reality. This is an adult conversation. As one friend of mine used to say when he was a, a minister at a college campus, hey, let's put on our big boy pants and have a big boy conversation. This is a big boy conversation. This is a big person conversation. It says if you don't want the implications of what Jesus gives you, then what you're essentially saying is I don't want Jesus. And that's okay for you to say. Just be consistent in it. But if you're going to say I want Jesus, then what you are also saying is that I want the implications of following Christ in my life. 
And I'm not going to stand on one side and say, boy, I love Jesus, and stand on the other and say, I don't want him to interfere at all with my life, my character, or my speech. The gospel was taking off in Jerusalem. What a picture. This begins in chapter 6. Now, in, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, they were, were growing. You saw the good news of the gospel as it was being lived out in this new community of faith that thousands upon thousands of people were coming to faith within Jerusalem, that they were living together in such a way that they were sharing with one another. There was, there was a glory and a beauty within it. And you see a little bit later on, it, it said that, that there were, in verse 7, uh, it said, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. So the class of, of leadership within Judaism was seeing the life and hearing the words of the first disciples of Christ, and they were professing in the Messiah and giving their lives to them. You talk about... <laughs> you, you talk about... Um, professional suicide. Now, all of a sudden, you have no job. You were a priest. You were working in the temple. And now you're going to say, hey, I don't need to offer sacrifices anymore because the ultimate sacrifice has come. The temple isn't needed anymore in the way that it once was. We have met the culmination of our faith. He would have lost everything. Most of these individuals lost everything by following Christ. And so they had to figure out how to live and care for one another. And people go, oh, I wish I could be like the first century church. Well, folks, we are. Because right here in chapter 6, the first century church, one of the very first things that they encountered was racism, nationalism, and classism. All of them were gathering together. All of them were sharing. There was need. There was poverty. There were all of these things. And the Hellenistic Jews, those who were not of Israel, Israeli birth, but had been in what was known historically as the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews all throughout the Roman and Greek empires, those who were out there who had now come back to Jerusalem, similar to what's happening in Israel now, many Jews from outside of Israel are moving back to Israel uh, to be uh, in the promised land. They had moved back, they'd heard the gospel, and now they had come and given their lives to Christ. And you find a tension. Because the Israelite Jews looked down on the Hellenistic Jews, and there was tension within them. And now in the first century church, in this brand new fledgling church, guess what? Old patterns were still there. And there was tension. Now whether it was legitimate or perceived, the Hellenistic Jews came to the apostles and they said, hey, in the daily distribution of the food, when we come and we come and get, our widows aren't getting food like the Israelite widows are getting food. They're, they're being neglected. And the only interpretation that we can come up with is that you're biased towards us. 
And so the apostles decided, and we talked about this this summer when we did a study on the church and looking at the offices of the church of elder, shepherd, uh, and deacon, that chapter 6 is the establishment of what we call deacons. Many of you may come from a Baptist or community church background, and you would say, oh, we have deacons. Well, the deacons in the Baptist church, by and large, function as what we would call elders. We have elders who are shepherds, and we have deacons who come alongside and that they are equal in their personhood of who they are. They just have different work within the economy. And the, and the deacons came along to serve the needs of the people. They stepped into the places of poverty. They stepped into the places of mercy, which freed the apostles, not because the apostles were too good for it, but the apostles said, listen, we have a role as well. And if we're doing everything, we can't do what we're called to do, so we're going to create this other group. And you heard the names of, of the men, of, of Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicorna and Taman and Parmenius and Nicholas. And what you notice about that, they're all Greek names. They were chosen out of the group to care for themselves and one another. And here was this man, Stephen. Interesting. He's the only one other than Nicholas who was said to be a proselyte of Antioch. A proselyte was one who was not of Jewish birth. He was a true Gentile who had come to faith in Christ. So you see the expansion of the kingdom even there in that simple little statement. And it says that Stephen, there in verse 5, was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. What a tombstone marker. If you consider what's going to be written on your tombstone one day, oh, wouldn't that be a glorious epitaph? Bill McCutcheon, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. But that's who Stephen was. And so we're going to look at his, his life here. We're going to look at how uh, the Spirit affected him in these three areas. The first is it's his character. We see that Stephen, affected by the gospel, his character was shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit. The deacons were being chosen, and it said that they had to be chosen as men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So now in this growing body of individuals, they considered, who are the men, who are the people who we can have to come and serve at the tables to represent Christ? And if they're going to represent Christ, they need to represent Christ in a way that their reputation within the community is one that is good. You always talk when our kids, when your kids are younger, and you're like, now be careful. You don't want to be somebody with a bad reputation. Or you don't want to be one of those people with a reputation. Or you hear someone as a, a pejorative term, oh, well, she's got a reputation. Well, folks, every one of us has a reputation. You know that, right? The question is, what is your reputation? How are you known within the community? How are you known within your neighborhood? How are you known within your family? Are you the one at Thanksgiving that everybody shows up and goes, huh, great. Or if you're one of those families and you say, everybody has somebody like that in their family, and if yours doesn't, be careful. You may be it. We all have reputations. Stephen was a man whose reputation was that of full of the Spirit and of wisdom. The majority of all of the qualifications, if you were to go, I'm not going to read it for you now, but if you flip over to 1 Timothy 3, 
and you look at verses 8 to 13, which are the qualifications for a deacon within the church, almost all of them are qualifications of character, not of giftedness, not of wealth, but of character. That these individuals were full of faith in the Holy Spirit, verse 5 of chapter 6. It said that he was full of grace and power, verse 8. And when they looked at him, when he was being challenged by uh, what used to be his old synagogue, by the way, the synagogue of freedmen, uh, it was a Hellenistic or, or Greek synagogue within uh, Jerusalem. They didn't like the fact that now Stephen and some of these others had come to faith in Jesus, and they hated the fact that they were growing in number and were taking people from the synagogue to be a part of the new Christian church. Uh, they brought these false accusations against Stephen. And it said, though, that when they were challenging Stephen, they looked at him. And I'm sure you've heard this about yourself a lot. They looked, and his face was like that of an angel. It didn't meant, mean he was handsome. It meant that there was something distinctively different just by looking at the countenance of who this man was in the face of opposition. The face of an angel. Some of you are quickly going to the little chubby cherub and the sweet little porcelain face. I don't think that's what they... I think that there was just such an otherness about Stephen, a peace, a sense of confidence and of calm within the middle of, of a persecution that would ultimately lead to his death. This is the third trial of Acts. The first trial, they just simply said of Peter and John, now don't do this anymore. The second trial, they beat them a little bit. And the third trial ended in the martyrdom and the assassination and the murder of Stephen, increasingly getting worse. And Stephen, knowing that bad things were on the horizon, they looked at him and said, wow, his face is like that of an angel. I don't think any of us have had that said to us. Not since we were being held in our mother's arms and everyone went, oh, the face of an angel. It's so sweet. So what's the conclusion when you start thinking about this character, who he was? It wasn't about what he did. But it was individuals knew who Stephen was. They were drawn to Stephen. They were drawn to the very essential nature and character of who he was, knowing that when they asked him for advice, that he wasn't going to give them some pithy little answer, that he wasn't going to go, let go and let God, let God be your co-pilot for you, uh, in that, hey, all things work to good for those who trust him. Yeah, they do, but help me out a little bit more. That They knew that he was a discerning man who at the very heart of who he was, was a man that you were attracted to, that you were drawn to by his very nature and character. And by the way, this isn't just for adults. Those young people who are in here, your character's being formed and shaped now. Oh, would it be shaped in such a way that others are drawn to you to see in you this beauty of grace and of strength. You see, when you come into a saving, life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, your life is actually affected by it. 
Your character is affected powerfully by it. Something's different about you. Something's different at the very heart. We're heading into the holiday seasons now, and many of you will read or watch A Christmas Carol. And though it's not a, a Christian story, it is borrowed from the true story. What happened to Scrooge? Scrooge encountered something that was so great in his life that it transformed him at a character level first, which then changed him so much that it led to an action and a lifestyle difference. And he was no longer speaking about humbug, but there was something now coming out of him in his words as well. Well, what happens in the Christian life? isn't a visitation from ghosts of the past and present and future, but a visitation by the king of all of the universe who entered into death, rose from the dead, seated at the right hand, offers now uh, his life for ours. And when we come into relationship with him, we are transformed at the very root of it all. So here's a diagnostics for you. Could some of these characteristics that are spoken of Stephen, could they be applied to you? Would they be applied to you? If you're not sure, ask someone if you're brave enough. Someone who loves you and has your best interests in mind. Say, as I consider Stephen, would you say this about me? Would this be something that you could say about me? That I'm a man, a woman, who filled with the Spirit is that of character and a bold confidence and a wisdom that others would see and know my reputation. Friends, sadly, that's just not the case. The reputation of the church, it used to be, I, <laughs> I'm not ashamed to be a pastor, but I don't like telling people I'm a pastor. In large part, because it used to carry with it a moniker of, I don't know, of positive reputation. But instead, today, it's, oh, you're one of those. You're one of those people that you say one thing, but you live another. You're somebody who can't be trusted. You're, you're somebody who does different things in the dark than you say and do uh, in the light that you're not. And it's the same way with the church. I've used this illustration before when I lived in another community. We needed some work done on our house, and I figured the best place to go find good, uh, good places, you know, good uh, contractors, I went to the local coffee shop, and I started asking people, who should we get to work on our house? And one guy said, I can't tell you who to get, but I can tell you who not to get. Don't get any of those people who have the little fish on their business cards. They'll take you every time. How sad that the reputation, and by the way, if you've got a little fish on the back of your car, be aware of how you drive. Be aware of how you salute one another. Whole hand, single finger, words, it all comes out. But it's a character shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're investigating Christ, I want you to recognize this. If you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, he's not just giving you a hall pass to heaven. 
He is coming in and changing you. You will be, when the Scripture said, the old is gone. I have died with Christ. The old Bill McCutcheon is gone. And there is a new Bill McCutcheon with a new desiring center, a new heart at the very character level of it. And that's what happens to you. And if that's what you want, it may be terrifying. But if that's what you want, Christ continues to invite you in. But if you just want fire insurance, and this isn't what he's about. So we see a character shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we see a lifestyle filled with service and power. Service and power. Uh, Those two seem to be in juxtaposition to one another or even in contrast to one another. You see, these men and Stephen were appointed to the duty of serving the tables in the daily distribution. They were basically told and asked and assigned, you go step into the poverty of the city. And by the way, the poverty of a city in the first century is very similar to the poverty of a city in the 21st century. It's poverty. It's people who are marginalized. It's people who have no voice. It's people who are perceived differently, people who are lost in the system, people who cannot get out of the system on their own. And what they don't need are people standing outside telling them to just get busier. And what Stephen was seeing was that instead of looking at their poverty and saying to the woman or saying to the man, just go get a job. Just go do something about it. He stepped into the poverty. He stepped into their brokenness. In that sense, taking it on, getting dirtied and sullied by it, so that he could care for their needs. His action of willingness to serve the needs of the impoverished in his community was tied to the quality, the character quality of humility. It's not mentioned as a character quality, but you know that it's there. He did not think too highly of himself, and it showed in his willingness to care for others. Sometimes I wonder if the inverse is true. If someone is unwilling to serve in the simplest places to the least of these, is it tied to an underlying, underlying character quality of pride? That at the very base, it's saying, I'm better than them, and I'm not going to go serve them. Serving, caring for the needs of others, is at the very heart of what it means to follow Christ. And the reason we know this, it was at Christ's heart. Philippians 2. When you look and you see, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same character, the same heart of Christ, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, 
Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Stephen understood and what Stephen encountered when he came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ was the profound humility of Christ, the power of Christ, because he was the resplendent God himself in human form, but came in in service to the world that was desperately in need of him. And when Christ takes up residence within our hearts, and you take up residence within his heart, us in Christ, Christ in us, guess what? You can't get rid of that part and say, I'm not willing to serve anybody else. It's not a supply chain matter, it's a heart matter. The reason that people within the church, not just ours, but the church of Jesus Christ are unwilling to serve the needs of other people is because they have a problem at the heart level. I'm too busy. I'm too above it. I'll give some money, but I'm not getting my hands dirty. I'll stand outside. What if Jesus stood outside? He didn't. He entered in, and Stephen encountered him and said, who am I? I don't know if Stephen was of noble birth. I don't know anything about Stephen, but what I do know about Stephen He was honored to be asked to serve at the tables of the impoverished in Jerusalem. He took great joy in it, it seemed. Yesterday I was going to go fishing with a buddy of mine. Was going to go fishing. We were driving over the bridge and heading out to Bluffton and we heard something and then saw something. The trailer snapped. And we're dragging a broken trailer with a boat on the back of it, pulling over to the side of the causeway. You know where we are, just on the grass to the right-hand side, where there is no shoulder. And we're there, and we're trying to figure out what to do to grown men standing, staring at a broken... It's literally snapped in half at the tongue. I scratched my head, and he scratched his head, and we stopped right over a dead carcass, which was perfect bones and smells and all the lovely part of it and we thought well let's just see if we can get to the cross island and get over to at least a little safer area so he started dragging it and stuff is going out and I thought well I'll walk behind kind of letting people know on Saturday which we all know is changeover day so there's a hundred thousand people leaving the island yesterday and plenty of them were letting us know that they didn't like that we were on the side of the road. And I was thinking about this sermon. Not one person slowed down. Y'all need any help? Not one person pulled over. We were passed by police officers. We were passed by lots of folks. We were given hand signals and words and honks. And it broke my heart to think, man, that's what the world thinks about the church. Their lives are broken and busted and sitting over smelling rotting corpuses, corpses. And we drive by and go, Jesus loves you. Hey, Stephen recognized 
that when Christ comes in and takes residence within our lives, our first natural instinct is to look to somebody else and go, is there anything that you need? Is there anything that I have or I can get that can help meet your need? Friends, that's at the very heart of the church. Every one of us are deacons, by the way. And the reason we know that is Jesus said, I did not come to be deaconed, to be served, but I came to serve. And Paul said, take this on yourself. So here's my conclusion on this. The work of Christ in our lives must be seen in our desire to serve the needs of those who are around us. It must be seen in that way. How many of you all live somewhere? It's low-hanging fruit, folks. Not setting you up. How many of y'all have people near you who live somewhere near you? Do those people have needs? Do you know what they are? And if the answer is no, it's because you haven't asked. You're a parish priest. You're a deacon set in your neighborhood for the express purpose of shining the light of Jesus Christ in your character and in your lifestyle to your neighbors so that they can see the beauty of Christ in you and be drawn to Him. They may never come to our church, and that's absolutely fine. I don't care about growing this church anymore. What I care about is growing the kingdom. That you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, transformed on the inside out, are going to go and you're going to come, and maybe even today, you're going to get to know your neighbor in a new way, and you're going to go, hey, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything you need? Is there any need that you possibly have that I could help? Can I pray for you? Could I encourage you in those things? Friends, it's at the very heart. So where are you currently serving the needs of others? It doesn't have to all be within the church. It needs to be within the church, but then it needs to be out. So where are you currently serving the needs of other people? And if you're not, ask this next question. What's keeping you from doing it? What's really keeping you from doing it? Now, the last thing, and this will be, this will be short. Stephen's words were powerfully proclaiming the truth of Christ. Chris alluded to it, uh, the old statement that said, you know, um, share Christ, and if you have to, use words. You have to use words, friends. Stephen's accusers could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, chapter 10. He spoke with great respect to his opponents. Boy, there is something that is lost. Look at how he began. This is a group of men gathered around him to kill him. It was set up just like the trial of Jesus. False witnesses, false testimony, done illegally, and he probably knew what was going to come. And Stephen said, fathers and brothers, what a sign of respect. We can't even talk across an aisle. Stephen came and he spoke with such respect. And then extemporaneously launched into one of the greatest treatments of biblical narrative history and of the beauty of Christ from Abraham to the New Testament. 
extemporaneously. He went through, and I don't have time to unpack it, but as you go and study it, you will see that he addressed the land, the law, and the temple. The three pillars upon which the Jews set their faith. And he systematically destroyed each of them and presented in their place the true foundation of faith, which was no longer the land, for the land had been claimed now by Christ. He is the promised land. The law had been perfectly completed in Christ, the lawgiver and now the law completer, and the temple was no longer needed because Christ had come and fulfilled the purpose of the temple. And he said, now, what you need is Jesus in the middle of it. He used words. He knew the Scripture so well that he was able to discern and communicate. Because here's the deal. The friend on your left in your neighborhood, the neighbor on your left, needs the same Jesus as the neighbor on your right, but presented in uniquely different ways. Because the brokenness of this family and the brokenness of their need, you need to be able to know and discern in such a way that you present Christ to them the truth of Christ, so that it begins to dismantle their idols, building up now what they need in Christ. This one over here, it may be a different way. But you know and you discern as beautifully as Stephen did. And you don't just hand the four spiritual laws. You get to know them. Stephen knew so well what to do. He understood what Peter would later say in 1 Peter 3.15. This is from the New Living Translation. Your heart should be holy and set apart for the Lord God. Always be ready to tell everyone who asks why you believe as you do. (laughs) Hey, why do you go to church? You say you're a Christian. Why do you believe what you believe? Are you able to give an answer to that? Friends, are you able to tell everyone who asks why you believe what you do? Are you able to take the good deeds, mix them now with good words, and present the beauty of who Christ is? Here's what we're on. We're on mission. We're on mission. We're looking to her horizon where we want to see more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, there are plenty of them on the island. There are 40,000 people on the island. The latest statistics show that over 80% of them are not churched. It's fertile ground for those of us who live on the island. Chris, what are the statistics out in Bluffton you told me this week? 70% of people in Bluffton aren't churched. There's a lot of folks who need to hear the glory of Jesus Christ. And you know who gets to do that? We do. Who are the ministers of this church? We are. You are. I am. And so like... Stephen, transformed by the power of the Spirit, that our characters are different to what we do and how we live and what we say. Friends, you're now invited to the most humble table in the entire world. This is the Lord's table. It's built upon the foundation of his powerful serving of his people by laying down his life. So we're going to invite you to come, but only come in humility, recognizing your need for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Can't wait to meet Stephen one day. To see what he was like. 
But in the meantime, I pray that my life would be able to be described similarly as his. Man full of the spirit of grace and of faith, of good works. That others, when they come and see me, would be able to say there's something so profoundly different about him that I see almost the face of an angel. And that I'd be willing to live for the gospel. Father, thank you that Christ was willing to live. The gospel was worth his life. And I pray that we're drawn to this table. We would come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.